0: Welcome to Community Echoes on 93one CFISFM Prince George's community radio station, with your host, Phyllis Warren.
1: And good afternoon. We have such an exciting day on a nice, beautiful summer day. Our guest today is Leo H- Hebert, and we're going to talk to him about his life story and everything else like that. Welcome, Leo. How are you? Oh,
2: I'm good. I'm good. Nice and relaxed today. It's beautiful outside. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. So, what's your background? You you were born in Alberta and you moved to Prince George and you grew up in this area and
2: Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. We uh I'm one of uh nine kids and uh my we I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta. But uh back in 1967 is when we moved here things were kind of going slow for my dad there so in 67 we moved to prince george uh just just like the beverly hillbillies you know loaded up the truck and we moved to prince george and uh yeah lived out at pineview blackburn area most of my life that's the first school was pineville elementary
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, grade uh six i was 11 years old when we came in eh? and uh, and yeah so i've been here ever since really i did go away uh and right after high school, right after PGSS, I went away to Alberta, went to, you know, there was lots of construction going on. So I was out there building houses and getting involved in building buildings and, uh, you know, learning learning how to live on your own, eh? You know? Right, yes. You know, all that stuff. With nine, there was nine kids of us, and we lived out out in Pineby, like I said, and, um, you know, it was just a small little place we had, and there was 11 of us so, you know, so... Uh, there, most people out in Pineview in those days too, and even out the Heart and all those places, they, it, there wasn't any fancy homes in those days. There was a lot of small shacks, you might say.
1: Yes, yeah,
2: and uh, you know, so yeah, so we we lived through that um, in Grand Prairie before we moved here. Uh, my dad had twenty acres of land outside of the out of Grand Prairie and. He was trying to build a house there, so he built a garage, just a garage. It was, God, it was, when I looked at it now, it's really small. But we had, there was 11 of us in this, lived in the garage first before he built the house. Yeah. So it was living off the land in those days. It was, uh, we didn't have a well, we didn't have running water, um, hydro, we had power. Uh, for a while, we didn't. So, you know, we, mom used to do all of her... Clothes washing and cooking on a wood stove, and uh, we had a small house, a chicken coop, big garden, uh, and a root cellar to keep the to keep the vegetables. You know, for the yeah. root cellar, and
1: yep.
2: yeah, it was uh, it was a good time. You know, it really, it was really good when I think about you know the life then, right, to what we have now. It's just pretty fast-paced nowadays. Lots uh you know, and the, and the young kids nowadays, they have a hard time, you know, especially the cost of housing and the cost of living and... Oh, yes. And all these, you know, social media stuff that goes on and just, it's just a totally different world now, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I, yeah, we moved here in 67. That was when Canada was a 100 years old.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah,
2: it was 100 years old. Yeah. My mother, she's, uh, she's Cree and Nakota or, or and so she's from the Saw Ridge First Nation in Slave Lake, Alberta.
1: Right.
2: And my dad, he's from Cold Lake, Alberta, which is northern Northern Alberta. Right, it's right uh, close to the border of Saskatchewan. So
1: oh, there's yes. There's an Air
2: Force base up there.
1: Yes, that's yeah. right, too. And,
2: and so my dad his family are, are homesteaders. They came from Quebec and came to Canada or to Western Canada. And uh, in those days, you know, there was land available, you know fifty dollars for a quarter section of land or yes. a section of land, I should say, yeah, so they ended up uh, successfully getting some land up there and there were farmers and fishermen and my grandfather was a school teacher up there in that part of the world he taught school for fifty five years and and um, yeah, and they so dad and mom and dad met and um, uh, in um, it was not Slave Lake and in a, in a logging where they used to do a bunch of logging, and they used to have a, a bunch of small, what they called scrag sawmills, these eh? scrag mills. Yes. You know, so he thats what Dad was a welder, mechanic type thing, and Mom worked in the in the in the camp, eh, cooking and cleaning and stuff. And so they met each other that way, and so there you are. You know, all these years later, they're both gone now. Of course, am. Eh? Yes, you know they passed away. They were they were all both born in 1921. So, and Dad lived to be a a good old age of 89, and then Mom, well, she passed away quite young. I'd say she was only 69. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, she had a lot of uh, medical issues. She she had diabetes and arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, really bad. And um, yeah, so but she, you know, she was a good mother, right? You know, we all went to. She was a survivor of the residential school system, and my grandmother and, and most of that side of the family, uh, survivors of the residential school. And, uh, yeah, so I, uh, you know, it was a good, you know, it was a good life, really. You know, we, you, you had to, uh, like Dad always said, you know, you can't wait around for him. If you want something, you have to go out and get it. Yeah. Legally, not illegally. Yeah, yeah, go get it legally, right? So work for it or whatever you got to do. So I've been doing that. I've been doing that most of my life, right? I' been in Prince George. This is my home, really. Um, get back to Alberta now and then, once in a while,
1: for a visit. Yeah.
2: For visits, yeah, we've got a lot of relatives there. Um, my wife's really heavily involved. We've been married now for forty, just about forty three years, and uh, she's really heavily involved in genealogy. Oh yes, doing family history research. Eh? So through what she's learned about our family, it's really, really interesting—the history of, of on the indigenous side, from the native side. Eh? Yes, and it's it, yeah. There's lots. There's so much that we've learned about. Uh, well, you know, belonging with your with your nation. Yeah, you know, because I've lived away from my people. I've never did live with the Cree, Cree and uh, Nokota people in Alberta. I've lived mostly with the Dakelh Carrier people here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, so I, I worked, I worked with this within the Carrier Sikani territory for most of the First Nations and Klaitlitanay and. Uh, for years, and you know, work with them on their in their communities, and when I was with the tribal council, and we spent time about what nine years with the Cary-Sagani Tribal Council in the early '80s, starting with in the early '80s when when things were just Indian Affairs used to have an office here, you know, mm-hmm. they had a regional office here, yes, and the tribal council was set up to, I don't know, take take. I those days were working on self-government, working on looking after ourselves. So there was programs that Indian Affairs provided, and so the Tribal Council basically took over some of those advisory services and what have you. So so in the early 80s, I started. And uh, that's when I was introduced to, to Reserves, Living on Reserve, the Indian Act, all about all of the struggles uh, that Not only the Dakar people or the Carrier people did, but just Indigenous people right across Canada. Yes. You know, there was a a, a lot of learning going on there about, you know, just living conditions and education. And there was a lot of priorities that the chiefs and the communities had made a priority. And education was the number one. And then housing was was another one, of course. Social services, childcare. Um, so I was involved in the in the eighties when it was just beginning to to be transferred to to the responsibility of, of Indigenous communities themselves. Eh? Right. So through that, I've learned a bit about First Nations issues. You know, I, mean, I when I I was raised, uh, my dad is French and Scottish, and my mother went to residential school, basically, but they adopted the Catholic, you know, church, and they, so they, uh, you know, we, we were raised that way. Um, but you know, it wasn't until I it was in my teenager years, and I started thinking about I'm um, brown, you know, <laughs> don't know and don't know much about it. Didn't my mom knows her language inside and out, but she never, we never learned it. Yes. We never learned it because she, you know, it was to be indigenous or native in those days, it was kind of, you know, she was not ashamed. But she didn't want to speak her language because basically we are told not to speak it right, in residential school and, and all of that. So she was really, so we never learned her language, didn't know our culture, didn't know our customs, didn't know very little about um, what Cree was, eh?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you know, I mean, I mean, raised in a in the mainstream society, regular schools and PGSS school, and in uh, working uh, in the private sector for a while as well, I picked up some skills and knowledge about being able to work within mainstream society. You know, right? I, it, you know, so I became I started working construction, like I said, when I was younger, and you know, and I. Uh, I always, but I always had a challenge. I was always challenged with, for some reason, I always felt like I didn't quite have the, I didn't have the, 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 yeah, I didn't quite belong. I didn't have the same incentives to, to get out there and, uh, and, and fit in. It, it was really a, a strange thing when I was growing up. I always thought maybe, geez, I missed a few courses or something, you know. I, there's, <laughs> <laughs> cause you know, the, there's a culture, there's a culture in anything. If you're, let's say if you're in the, uh, trucking industry or if you're in the, in the logging industry or, or whatever, any lot of it, there's culture within each one of those. And, uh, as an indigenous person, I remember people used to call me chief, you know. Hey, chief. Come over here, you know. And I. so I was looked at as as an indigenous person then. But even in the indigenous First Nation community, some people thought I was the Nido, right? Yeah. The, the non in You know? Yeah. So it was kind of like both... Living in both worlds from, from yeah. both sides. And
1: yeah. being on the fence.
2: Well, you, yeah. Being on the fence. But, you know, but after I started working with the tribal council and the bands and... And understanding in much more detail about the struggles that they had. I related to that more than, than mainstream. I related more to them than, so I kind of committed myself in those days to, to work with them to find ways to get some solutions for themselves, right? Find their own solutions as opposed to government imposing solutions into community. Into into us, eh, right? Because right. we we were regularly we were wards of the state, right? We were wards, and you know the research that my wife has done, and then over the years, as as the whole indigenous awareness has become more and more aware uh, to to connect to Canada, and even to within our own communities as well, too, really understanding that history, and uh, you know, it, it's good that we're the the truth like what they call truth, is coming out. Yes. Right? It's the true story. You know? Mm-hmm. you know, when I was in school, we never studied much about local indigenous stuff. It was just the same old history of how, you know, some of the the discoverers came and discovered us and renamed everything and, you know, yes. and put people on reserve. And, you know, and then my grandfather and my ancestors in Alberta, they they were under the the Indian Act, of course, and they so they had to apply, it was a pass, you had to apply, you had to get a pass to leave the reserve. Yeah. The pass system, right? So if you, if you wanted to go hunting or if you needed to go to somebody's place to go to a funeral or whatever, you had to get approval to leave the reserve. And then you had to be back within that time frame that you had. And if you didn't come back in that time frame, they would find you and then you'd spend some time in jail for a while, you know, if you didn't you know, and all of that stuff. So I never really knew about them when I was younger. But as I began to learn more about that history, I, you know, I I was compelled to participate just to be a member in helping to find solutions. Mm -hmm. How How do we help make change? You know, how do we change things? How can we... So most of my life, work life, has been doing that, really.
1: Right.
2: Most of it, you know, I...
1: And, and like with my family, both my parents went to residential school. Mm-hmm. And when we were being brought up, my father figured we shouldn't do anything to do with our native background. Well, yeah. We had to speak English. We mm-hmm. had to go to schools. Mm-hmm. But they moved from Alberta to Prince George because there was no residential schools around here. It's true. Right? And they wanted to keep the family intact. Mm-hmm. So we never learned our Cree language. I know. You know, and we would go out to Alberta and, and visit our relatives, mm-hmm. and it was completely different because it was reserved life. Yeah. Right? And it was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is completely different from Prince George. Mm hmm
2: yeah they they, they, a lot of the communities there retained their language and their culture right they you know because of course treaty they they had signed a treaty um treaty six treaty seven treaty eight yeah all of those treaties and so there were some some promises made anyway right I mean that's so they at least had that and then there was land as well too right and you're right I my uncle Bill and I and my brother Daryl, we went back to the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty 8 in Groard, Alberta. They had a week-long kind of event, and they recreated the signing of the Treaty 8. I actually saw the treaty, the original treaty that was signed. Uh, got to know, but I really noticed there that there was, even the little kids were running around speaking their treaty. You know, they were, they didn't speak in English there. Yes. And then they had this really beautiful powwow. Just that, you know, and I was just becoming more and more aware of my own uh, Cree and Nakota culture. So, you know, I've been to a couple of powwows before, but I didn't really, you know, really understand. Just that I knew that when I was there, the sound of the drum and and just the regalia that people were playing and the ceremonies. And I just felt like here i belong here i can tell that you know
1: this is home
2: yeah you know you feel at home there eh? and and so there's something about that and so they had a really a beautiful powwow there that was really really touched me i mean i'd never really spent overnight much in my own traditional territory and um, a sister of mine had gone to treatment to a place called kapawan treatment center there before and she was there for a month or so and while she was there, she had what's called an ancestral dream. So while she was sleeping, she said she was visited by some ancestors in her dream, an ancestral dream. And I thought, yeah, right. You know, I like guess. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, of course, when I went there with my Uncle Bill and we slept in a little bowler trailer and camped out there, and I went to sleep, and I had an ancestral dream as well and it was like people that I'd never met before but while I was you know in the dream I was they were coming to say hello yes just like they were right there yeah and most uh, most people regardless of where you're from or what nation you are if you can go back to where it all started for you don't be surprised if that happens right yeah and sometimes we don't we're not aware of that but that's you know you think of how many thousands of years our people were on that land, living and surviving and, and thriving for years. And then they're, they're, their spirit is going to be there. Their, oh, yeah. Their history is there. Yes. It's just like here as well. Same thing. tightly, like they got a lot of history, thousands of years of history here. And it's so interesting to learn more and more about that, you know. It really is.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, when they were fixing the bridge, uh, you know, yeah. they came across that uh, little yeah. hunting area. That's so they, right. you know, boarded it off, dug in, you yeah. know, trying to find things there, artifacts. Uh, yeah,
2: I think they found stuff that was all back to nine or 10,000 years ago. Yes. That they were carbon dated, right? So, it, you know, it, that's, the, so that's really, that's, uh, there's a lot of history here that none of us really know en- enough about. And all of our older people, our elders, are passing on. But I know that there's a real strong resurgence in language, learning languages again, getting to know the culture, getting to know your ceremony. To the young people, eh? and in the schools and, and universities, colleges, it's all, it's all focused on that as well, too, and that's so good to see. Yes, you know, to be part of that as well.
1: Reliving it, bringing yeah, it back yes. to life. Yeah, we had a good way to live.
2: We had a right. good way to live, not only, you know, with the earth, with the with nature and with the earth, um, and you know, so we. This has been a good good life. It's been a good life. Uh, the, my the first half of my life. I'm only sixty-seven years old now, so I got another. 67 more to go
1: exactly yeah. and on that we're gonna go to a commercial and we'll be back to talk more with leo
3: you ever thought to yourself boy it'd be nice to have a show that only features pop rock and new a from the 70s 80s
2: 90s and the odd time a little bit near well you found the place saturday evenings 9 to 11 it's all the map with jimmy james and it's the show that does feature pop rock new a from those decades There's also the 930 1970s feature track, the 10 o'clock double shot, and to put the wraps on every week's show, the final vinyl feature. So tune in Saturday evenings 9 to 11.
3: It's all the map with Jimmy James, only here on 93.1 CFISFM. Kaylin has just learned that she's not as human as she thought she was. Now she needs to figure out who she is and if she can trust Ronan, a man with more secrets than he's willing to share. Be on hand at Books and Company, Saturday, July 8th, as local author Sarah Neeson presents her first novel, Trust in the Smoke. Meet the author and pick up your signed copy, Trust in the Smoke by Sarah Neeson. The book launch, Saturday, July 8th from 1130 to 230 at Books and Company, 4th and Winnipeg. The Prince George RCMP is asking for your help in finding 40-year-old Matthew Thomas Lance Alston, wanted for robbery, assault with a weapon, and uttering threats to cause bodily harm. Alston is described as a Caucasian male, five 5'10", 133 pounds, with short brown hair, blue eyes, and multiple tattoos on his face. He is considered dangerous and should not be approached. If you know the whereabouts of Matthew Alston, please contact the RCMP immediately at 250-561-3300. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, a mix of sun and cloud, a high of 27 with a high UV index. Tonight, partly cloudy, a low of 11. On Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud, a 30% chance of showers in the afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm, a high again of 27 with a high UV index.
0: You're tuned into Community Echoes on 93.1 CFIS-FM with Phyllis Mm -hmm. Warren.
1: And we're back again, and me and Leo were just discussing you know, a few things, and we're going to talk to him more about his career and how he got involved with the housing and and everything. And, you know, how did that come about? You started with you know, um, through Carrier-Sakani Tribal. Yeah. And
2: well, it, I, I was a, a carpenter, you know, building house at Building Buildings, When I right after I left high school, went to Alberta, and I, you know, just worked with up and Fort McMurray and Edmonton, Lloydminster, different parts of Alberta, construction, and then I moved back to, to, to BC in about 1979, it was about 1979, and I ended up working in Williams Lake, that's where I met my wife. I oh. met my wife Maureen in Williams Lake and, like. and uh, you know I was looking, I was w- involved in working with, because one of the things I learned in Fort McMurray was all about satellite dishes and and you know in those days those great big 10 foot 12 foot satellite dishes that people could put up to get TV right so I learned how to set those up too while I was in Fort McMurray right so I ended up doing some work with Cablevision as well too so when I came to, a, to back to BC I got a job with Cablevision in Williams Lake and I was also had built a couple of houses for a couple of teachers there while I was doing that then and, and uh, when I met my wife uh, she come with kids I had an instant family and uh, we sold up from there we moved to Prince George and we built a house up on the heart highway and uh, the kids were going to heart I mean to Kelly Road and Glendry Elementary up there and so I was building houses with Irwin Homes at the same time. That's what I was doing, building houses. And then all of a sudden there was an ad in the newspaper. They were looking for somebody with Aboriginal ancestry and who's interested in learning how to be a building inspector, you know, for uh, CMAC. And so I threw my name in the hat. Well, I, you know, I got the job. So now I was starting there. And I don't know if you remember, there was an old organization. It was called BACANCY. So the BC Association of Non-Status Indians. Yes, and then from that it morphed into to the United Native Nations, and then through that they had an organization called BC Remote Housing. So they, they delivered a, a program for Cmates It was called the RAP program, Residential Rehabilitation Assistance Program. So that's what I was taught to do: is go out and there was a grant, uh, three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Then it went up to five thousand, and there was a grant for. It wasn't on, just on reserve. It was for anybody uh, to make some improvements to your house. So I traveled all over the whole northern B.C., all kinds of places, um, assessing houses, and then figured out what needed to be wrong, or what needed to be done, I should say, and then helped him with the paperwork to get the grant. And yeah. And so all over this northern, all the way up to Atlin and Prince Rupert and all over. And uh, so I did that for a few years. So I got, And that's when I got introduced to the reserves. Get introduced to, you know, on reserve as well. And then the tribal council was getting started and they had an opening for housing and housing and manager officer. So I put my name in. I got the job. So I ended up working with them for about, oh my goodness, about eight years and and most of the eighties and that was it. That was tribal council at that time had 17 member bands and there was 21 inhabited villages in those days and they were Carrier, and Sakani, so both together. So, McLeod Lake used to be called the Injanika Band, called Sekei Dene now, and Fort Ware, Coracha now, and Lake Babine, Stony Creek they used to be called Saikas now, Natliwaten and Stalaten, the Burns Lake Band, Almanika uh, Band at the time, which became the uh, Witsorten, Skintai, and neat Bun Band. Then there was Chislada, uh used to be the Fort George Band here, now tightly today. So there was a lot of different communities that I that I work with in housing on reserve. Very specific to on reserve. So in those days so we had to do a housing needs study, look at and along with housing, you can't just have housing, you gotta have water and sewer. Yeah. So you need all that infrastructure as well too. ways, so developed some plans uh, you know planning ahead and looking at the population growth uh, for First Nations indigenous people on on and off reserve and obviously that system the Indian Affairs system the Indian act system did not and could not keep up to the to the demand for housing there was just no way they could there was just not a very little bit of money each year would trickle in, you so you know, and then Canada Mortgage and Housing came up with a program for it was a lending program, so the bands would borrow the money and then they would over a period of twenty five to thirty years they pay it, they pay it, pay it off, right? Right. And so there was a bit of subsidy that was provided. So there was, but the land that most uh, reserves uh, were asked to build on were usually small land. Usually some of the land that you, like high water tables, and most of the good land was divvied out to the settlers when they came. Right. There's a really good book if you really want to understand that story about how reserves were established here, and it's called Making Native Space. And it's, uh, uh, I, can't, I can't remember, Richard, God, I can't remember the author's name, but anyway, he's a professor at, the, at UNBC. But that, it really tells you a lot about how, how they decide or determine where the borders of the reserves would be when BC was forming. And uh, so you can see that most, a lot of the first nations and a lot of these remote areas or rural areas, they're really small lands. They were just, they weren't big tracts of land. You go to Alberta, you go to the blood reserve and it's, you know, thousands of acres. And, but here in BC, there were so many, they're like, there's over 200, just a little over 200 bands in BC and so many different uh, languages and, and nations, right? It's BC is really diverse, but around in this area here, though, that uh, so it was really hard to a get the money to put the infrastructure in the ground, um, and then b put put housing with it, right? And then you can't just have houses out; you got to have support wraparound support social services um you know all of those things had fire protection all of those things so we worked on all of that and you know as you can see now of course uh you know the condition of housing well it seems like housing is in a crisis doesn't matter who you are really yeah nowadays more so with uh people that are on fixed income the most vulnerable people of course of course you know and they're the ones that you see on the street here and homeless mm-hmm. and, and struggling struggling because uh, in some cases some of the communities don't have the resources they don't have the services they don't have the housing they don't have the support there so you know consequently people find themselves they, the the aboriginal housing management association of BC did some research on the population of indigenous people off reserve and some are upwards to seventy to eighty percent of their membership live off reserve. Yes, right, and 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 so that's been a you know, and there's still a an ongoing battle where First Nations are you know a lot of people want to move back to their traditional territory too. They're like they feel the same way I did when I was trying to survive in this society. Is that so? You don't fit in. You know, you're not. This whole this whole thing about get an education, get a good job, get a house, all that stuff that's that's so far from what people can even think about doing. They're worried about just the basics.
3: Where mm-hmm. am I going to get
2: water? Where am I going to eat? Where Where am I going to sleep? You know, stuff like this. Eh? And it's so it's a huge struggle. I mean, I've I've been involved with it not only through the Tribal Council Native Friendship Center. The Aboriginal Employment Training Association. The, uh, right now I work part time with the, the Aboriginal Housing Society of Prince George right now where we're yes. trying to develop some housing downtown. And, uh, so l- my role here is just basically to look at the ongoing maintenance management and operations and maintenance of all of that. So we sustain, we can sustain them, keep them up, up, you know. So it's, a, it's, a, it, it, housing has always been a real challenge. Um within indigenous community, and it's not just social housing either it's not just subsidized housing or social housing or or uh, shelters or anything there's a whole lot of people that are working towards home ownership, yes being able to own a place of their own right right and there is a lot of lot of talk about it right now there's lots of different tables where federal provincial, local governments first nations uh, are are getting together a little more now uh trying to find more of a collective uh solution some ideas around that and it and that's for the whole housing continuum that's not just for homeowners it's right from homelessness to shelters to seniors. subsidies senior's housing lots of single people they can't afford to even rent a what a one bedroom apartment unit.
1: Yeah, you can't even afford that. Yeah, and if they're on social assistance, it's like five twenty five. You pay your rent and your bills out yeah. of that portion.
2: So you gotta have you got a roommate with three or four people, or you know, in a, if you're if your family, if your parents were in a position where they, you know, they looked after things that they had a mortgage, and you know, they paid off their mortgages, so. They're benefiting from this huge, high price of housing right now. It's, you know, to even let alone rent, but also to own a place to get in. You need some big down payment and all that stuff. So there there really has to be something done, you know, and, and it's affecting everybody. This whole crisis is affecting everybody. But the ones that are the most vulnerable, they're the ones that are feeling it the most. Yes. You, you know, Really. My wife and I included. My goodness, you know, we live, we're we renting a, a condo that went up for sale and it's sold. So we're looking for a place too now.
3: Yeah. And,
2: and And we're both old-age pensioners. I do a little bit of part-time work. But uh, just looking at what's available just here in Prince George, unbelievable. You know, $2,000 a month, uh, $1,800 a month. And that's uh that's a basic kind of a place, yeah, if you want yeah. a real fancy one, well you gotta make sure you save money and have a pension plan beyond your old age pension and stuff right so
1: yeah and and that's what I've been hearing, you know the prices of a one bedroom place now, thousand dollars twelve hundred fourteen hundred, yeah, it's
2: just, you know it's just totally
1: who, nuts, you know, so even if you're working full time, yeah. Your paycheck is going just for that rent, and yeah. then you worry about getting a little bit of food.
2: Yeah, some food. You, you know. know, your basics, even medicine. If, mm-hmm. you, if you're,
1: you know, if you gotta buy, you gotta live.
2: Yeah, so I know that, I, I know governments and everybody knows it's a problem. There's a crisis. And, you know, i I'm, I'm been involved within the sector for so long myself too, and I know, I'm aware of some things that are coming down the tube. You know, conversations that are happening between First Nations and government and what have you. So there is some solutions coming down the, down the road. And there there's some good things happening already, too, right? And I hopefully over the next little while. Uh, so myself, over those 40 years, I, you know, the, the, there wasn't the money there for like there is today for housing. There really wasn't. Um, the federal government got out of social housing in 1994 and didn't really do much for quite a few years. The provinces kind of took it over and local governments, no, that's not our responsibility. That's the federal's responsibility or whatever. Yeah. So, but now, I think everybody's bucking up and uh, coming up with some good solutions. Eh? So, you know, I, I I was trying to retire and I keep on getting yanked back into the, <laughs> you know, and I, I often think I sure wish I could have done more. Yeah. I wish there was more I could have done. But it was, you know, you were working within a, a really, I would say, uh, a system that was broken between Indian Affairs and CMHC and all these other things. It was a broken system, a system that was set up to really fail, really. So consequently, now we're finding ways to to fix that. Right. And there's a lot of young people, too, that have a lot of good ideas, a lot of good new energy, looking at things differently. And I think there's some really good winners coming up that are going to be able to take on what we were trying to do and probably do twice as good or four times more than we did, you know? Yes. We all have our turn. We do our part when we can. And uh, that's basically what I try to do.
1: Yeah. And teach the next generation some been, things yeah. to add on to their own ideas. Yeah,
2: well, I've, I've been doing some mentoring. I, I've been mentoring some people online during COVID and stuff, right? Just housing managers in First Nations communities, one in Saskatchewan, one in Manitoba, one in Saskatchewan, a couple here, two or three here. It's been really good. You know, they learn from my mistakes. You know, the things that, don't do this. Whatever
1: you do. (laughs) yeah you know and and i think that's what we really need for this housing crisis mm-hmm. is pa- past experienced mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. coming forward and saying okay this is what we need to start doing yeah. immediately yeah. you know yeah and and it would help a yeah.
2: lot of people yeah well i've been doing that i mean i but the best i can with what i what i can and energy efficiency the climate change and all that stuff has been, has kind of taken over as well you know, that's a priority right now as well. Mm-hmm. So retrofitting, existing, and then building new. Using the new kind of construction materials and building codes and all of that, right? That's another big challenge as well.
1: Yeah. And and that is it. We need to now fit these homes into um, a certain percentage of mm-hmm. being safe, mm-hmm. eco-friendly. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and maintaining the heat and yeah. and everything inside of it.
2: Yeah, this hot weather we're getting that's gonna be more and more all the time, right? So we used to design and build houses to keep the cold, to keep the heat in. Yes. So now we also have to keep the heat out now too as well, right? Oh yeah. Right. So it's a different format of how you build. So
1: Yes. And and you know, even the windows are different. Oh yeah.
2: Doors. Heat. Heating systems, we got what's called a cold climate heat pump. So, Fort BC BC Hydro and Fort BC government, through all the new initiatives, we're trying to get people off natural gas or carbon producing fuel, right? So, the big push is to electrify everything to, you know, in order to do that. And using cold climate heat pumps where it takes the heat right out of the air and then it also to about minus 10 and then your electric baseboards have to kick in and then in the summertime it reverses that so you can actually cool your house in the summertime without any fuel other than electricity so in the new developments downtown here, BC Housing and what have you, insisted that we put these cold climate heat pumps in so that's a whole other thing to learn right now too is how to maintain and operate those as well, eh? So, yes. It's a heck of a lot more different than operating a wood stove. Hmm.
1: Throwing a log on the fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah. It's a lot different for sure. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But at this time we gotta have another commercial and we're gonna come back and continue continue our conversations with yeah. Leo. Yeah.
3: A few artisan vendor spots are still available for this summer's final night market at Studio 2880. Set for Thursday, August 17th, it's a great evening out for the whole family as you get to check out some unique makers, grab a bite to eat at the food trucks, and just enjoy strolling the grounds of Studio 2880. Vendor registration and more details are available under programs at studio2880.com. Studio 2880's Summer Night Market. Thursday, August 17th from 5 to 8 at Studio 2880. The downtown branch of the Public Library will be the location for a Know Your Rights workshop on Thursday.
0: Hosted by the B.C. Civil Liberties Association, the workshop aims to make sure people know what their rights and civil liberties are and how to take action and fight back against injustice. This workshop is aimed at adults and is a free drop-in event. Know Your Rights,
3: Thursday from 6 to 7.30 at the downtown branch of the Public Library. Construction is continuing on the creation of a roundabout at the corner of 18th and Foothills. Construction is expected to be completed by September. During the work, Foothills will be closed south of Glenshee Road and 18th will be closed west of the soccer fields. The UNBC Connector Trail parking lot will also be closed. Check the BC Transit website for transit routes impacted by the work. The City of Prince George reminds all drivers to use caution and obey traffic control personnel and signage near work zones. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, a mix of sun and cloud, a high of 27 with a high UV index. Tonight, partly cloudy, a low of 11. On Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud, a 30% chance of showers in the afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm, a high again of 27 with a high UV index.
0: Bringing you the voices of our community. This is Community Echoes on 93one CFISFM with Phyllis Warren. And we're back and we're
1: talking with Leo. And now we're going to discuss his new hobby, how he started into that. You were saying with COVID, it gave you more time. So let's hear what Leo is doing nowadays.
2: Well, uh, yeah, well, thank you. First of all, thanks for inviting me to come on here. I know this is, this is the end of, uh, the Indigenous History Month. And, uh, throughout the month, there's been all kinds of events going on. Yes. Beautiful event down at the park and, uh, Indigenous Day and all of that. And, you know, yeah, I, I, uh, COVID, when COVID came, I was working full time. And, and, and so when we got, uh, locked out and we had to stay home and all of that, I, I, I over the years, I always wanted to sit down and, and do some artwork and do some artwork. And I, I accumulated some art supplies, some canvases, paint, whatever else, but I just never really took the time to just sit down and do it. So COVID gave me that opportunity to, to, okay, I'm going to do some paintings here. And I, I, uh, you know, it's interesting when you sit there and look at a blank canvas and you say, okay, now what am I going to do with this? So I, took the time to use it use the time for me to actually learn a little bit more about my culture my own Cree culture so I started doing a little research on what a you know what a, what the drum is what it means to Cree and talking to some of my elders and the people that I know so I got to learn more about the spirit of some of the things that our people lived and made made themselves right off the land so I started with some uh, teepees, did a couple of teepees and understanding what that's all about of course because i was involved in housing so long first thing i did was the shelter how do we <laughs> look after ourselves and made sense so you know and it's not just a it's not just a bunch of poles and a moose hide on it and you live in there there's lots of meaning and each one of those poles the process you you set it up and the direction you put the door facing the east and and there's lots of lots of really good stuff in in each one of those. So, through my paintings, by the research on on what I was going to paint, I learned about the purpose and the meaning of what it was about. So it was really, it was really good for me. I uh, so I painted some teepees and I um, uh, I did a painting of a um, a, a birch bark basket. Yes. Um, and then also some beadwork. I. I Zoomed right into uh, uh, some beadwork on the on the top of a moccasin, and so I painted. There were 664 beads in that one, and it's about three feet by four feet high. This painting, and the idea is to draw draw people's attention into the details of the work that our our people did for thousands of years, for a long time, and. I've had moccasins made for me, one by Mary John, for example, from Saika many years ago. And when she gave me these gloves that were beaded that she did herself, she said that when she gave them to me, she said each bead that she puts in there, she says a prayer for the person who's going to be wearing them. Right. Right, so we, it, we and that's fairly typical. Some some people use a, a special bead and they put a prayer into that or what have you. But there's a lot of uh, meaning behind all of this stuff. And so I did a so that one that one sold. I sold that one. Then I did uh, uh some wraparound moccasins my grandma used to make. Used to wear those to school. And wow, that was all. And then uh, and then when uh, when they found this 215. Um, potential burial sites there in Kamloops. Uh, it just really made me. I was just compelled to paint a, pin, a painting of two hundred and fifteen moccasins, pairs of magasins, and it's a. It's hanging. This painting is hanging in the Clay uh, uh office downtown. It used to be the old Citizen Building, right? So it's hanging there. So I was, and that one, that was really healing for me. You know, painting is—you're uh, in the moment. I can be painting for three or four hours, and I—God, what time? Where did the time go?
1: Yeah.
2: So it really—it's almost like a meditative healing opportunity, right? And um, I—one of one of my last paintings I did it was—it's it's, a—it's a painting of a, a cradle board. Oh, yes. So the cradle board, and there's no moss bag in this one because a baby was taken. So it's a cradle board, beaded and leather, and it's laying in the grass, and it's it's like somebody just dropped it there, and there's no baby in there, and I call this painting taken because of all of the things that were taken away from our ancestors, right. away from us. First, they took the kids out of the community. First, they got rid of the medicine people and the and the spiritual people. And then they took away fathers' and mothers' uh, responsibility of looking after their kids. Then they took the land, of course. And then they took the language. You know, tried not, not ever. They didn't take all the languages away. So that's why I call that one particular one Taken. And it's all about, you know, and then maybe one day we'll have one. I'll do one with a baby in the cradleboard in the moss bag with the, with the mother and mm-hmm. the grandmother and the siblings and everybody together. And that's kind of where we're going with this, right? It's not... So I gave it... I, I used my art to not only learn about our culture, but also to make some statements as well, too.
1: Now, this picture of the baby boy mm-hmm. that's the one that was... Uh, the show on At the Friday, Almanica, yeah. At right? The, yeah, okay. That's a Hudson Bay blanket, is it? That's huh? another, yeah.
2: That's another reason. And,
1: yeah, yeah, and that's part of the history too. That's the right. Hudson it, Bay. Yeah, and and their input into oh yeah, they I mean, you know, the
2: the the things he did with uh, people that were trapping, and you know they could, remember you used to have to pile your pelts of beaver, mm-hmm. and uh, to the to how long your rifle was. Right, so you pile them up, and the rifle was this tall. Well, good. Then you got you get the rifle. So, what did they do? They extended the length of the barrel on the rifle another sixteen inches or so, so they get that many more pelts for 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 a rifle, right? Yeah. So there was all kinds of things like that, you know. Of course, people have been taken advantage of; they've been taken, you know. Yeah. And uh, some will argue, no, they didn't take. No, we're but we're retaking it. Mm -hmm. It's being re. Reinforced right into our own communities, languages and songs, drum songs, eh? One painting of mine is, is, uh, is the, is the powwow drum, just a drum by itself. And what that means to us, to our spirit. You know, the vibration, I don't know, I've been in powwows or close to a powwow drum and the, and the vibration that comes off the drum, it'll even vibrate your chest and mm-hmm. right into your heart and into your spirit. Yeah, it's just oh, it's just grounding. It's and a drum is the is actually the heartbeat of the earth. That's what a drum is. That's what a drum is.
1: Yeah,
2: and I, I'm I'm working on one right now. It's a jingle dress. A woman in a jingle dress dancing. Oh, and jingle dresses. Those were those jingles on there. They're on there to to invite to make aware of our ancestors to come and join us in the dance. So that they, so the jingle wake, it's a, it's a sign that, okay, we're getting together to share and, and to, you know, to celebrate our culture together, right? Yes. So everything that was ever made, the regalia, tools, you name it, had a purpose. And it had, so it wasn't just a thing. It was part of, so through my art, that's what I've been learning. I've been learning about how they did things because we never had Walmart. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there's no uh, save on more, right? Yeah, yeah. I I remember when I worked with the tribal council, Eddie John and the elders. They've always said that our supermarket is right here in the bush.
1: Yeah, it's
2: right there, and uh, yeah, things were built right from what you had. And of course, when Hudson's Bay come in and and oh boy, they got pots and they got all kinds of other things, beads even. They brought beads and. Knives and you know, all kinds of things. Well, of course, that benefited them,
1: of course. Yeah,
2: you know, it had it made things um, for cooking and, and hunting and surviving or thriving. I hate word surviving, or people didn't just survive, they uh. thrived off this land. Yes, and uh, so, anyhow, it's uh, so through my art by learning to what. Each one of those artifacts, or not artifacts, but just tools, or what we had, there was lots of meaning behind it and a lot of purpose. And so been, it's been—it's been really good for me to to take the time to do that and uh, learn a little bit more about my culture. I've been taking—I was taking a Cree language class. This is how crazy things are. i so of taking a Cree language class on Zoom, so there's a there's an elder in. Alberta, somewhere. So we got all of us that sign up for it from all over the place. And there she's an elder in the little screen on the. So she comes up with a word, you know, dance. You know, yeah. we all just like a bunch of parrots, dance. You know, like. <laughs> 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 and you try to string string three or four like make a sense in that sentences. I I have a hard time. I, you know, if if I'm a person's going to mm-hmm. learn their language, you got to go. You get just immersed, just go live amongst. Because language is so much connected to the land and the lifestyle and where you are.
1: Yeah. It's just
2: not. It's it, there's so many things you have to. You have to be right immersed right into it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Learning it from a book or uh, even on Zoom. Uh, no, because yeah. uh, even what I've learned in that, I, I, you know, I can't even remember it now. I got to be. Be nice to be living in an area where people. That's all people talk to. Then you would have to learn it, yeah. You know, and some schools are doing that. Most schools are doing that now on reserve and what have you. Kindergarten, Head Start programs, all of that. the kids are learning their language. They got stickers on every everything in the schools. You know, one of the things one of the things I've done in the past too is I worked with an engineering firm and we went out and I did what's called an asset condition report on community buildings, schools, band offices, uh, daycare centers, health clinics. So you go and do a quick look at it and what the condition is. And so while I'm in the schools and, and on reserve... Have all their language all of their doors are named. The bathrooms are named. the Everything they got. They're they're putting their own language to it. Eh? Mm-hmm. And even in communities at the at the the road signs and stop signs.
1: Yeah, it's
2: in their own language. And that roads are named something, a member, an elder, or a family member, whoever passed away. Or it's really really cool to see that. Yeah, you know to to see uh, um, you know the pride to see the pride coming back and. And the language coming back more and more and
1: more all the time, and to maintain the history.
2: Oh, you have to, yeah. The truth—it's not just what some anthropologists studied fifty years ago. It's, it's you know, the. I know that our histories were mostly oral; it was handed down from person to person. Yeah, you know? there, there was, but there were some. There is some good anthropologists who did spend time, and with community in those years, which is good because they did capture a lot of, took a picture of where things were at that time. And, you know, and they're still discovering things, a lot of indigenous anthropologists, and um, Clyte Tene actually has one or two, I think, who uh, were involved in that archaeological dig, right? Right. And they're certified archaeologists as well too, right? So they... In the museum, the exploration place around here did a really ni- did a really nice number there i don 't know if you 've seen it, but they 've got a really good display there on the tightlyton and the local and you know, the historical First Nation from this area they 've expanded that that 's really good lots yeah. to learn there, lots to learn in there.
1: Yeah, I haven't been there since they finished the renovations. Yeah. I went before, yeah. and then they closed for the renovations. Yeah, so. my
2: wife and I were there one one Saturday, and I uh, uh, really impressed with it. They did a, uh, what's her name, their, Um manager for the exploration place. She's, if she ever heard me talking like this, she'd kick my butt, because I can't remember her name, though. Tracy. Tracy <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, okay.
2: Yes, yeah, they did a good job there, and they've worked really closely with the today people. So they, they've, you know, I think uh, Joshua Seymour, I think, is on the board, and then they, over the years they've re- worked really closely with the community, which is good. Yeah, you know, and that's happening more and more all the time.
1: And and that's what needs to happen. Yeah, you know. Yep. Yeah, so
2: I'm, uh, you know, I'm coming to the end of my work career, you might say, um, and I'm not disappointed. Or I'm not sad about it. I wished I could have done more when I was doing things. It was a pretty hard challenge sometimes, fighting with government and whatever, and try to meet the needs of the people here at the here, and then the people who made all the rules and policy and what have you were here, and then working with between the two of those was really difficult. You know, the yeah. people, their needs are so high, and then there's only so much that was available you know, so you had to just kind of do the best you could, right? Yeah. And there was a lot, there's a whole lot of other people out there that were and are still working and improving, the, you know, the lives of of Indigenous people here in, in our own lands. There's a lot, there's a lot, and more to come. Lots of good things coming as well. You know, so I'm... Just grateful to be part of it, and uh, you know.
1: And when you retire, now you have your new found hobby That's of painting. Right.
2: I'm painting. I'm talking. I got. A, I even bought a drone, so I even know how to fly a cam- a flying camera, too. You know?
1: Oh, okay.
2: Well, yeah, f- uh, photography is something I've always been interested in. Two ways. So I, but I sure I want to get my my podcast going on indigenous housing. Maybe mm-hmm. you guys could help me out with that. Yeah. You guys seem to know what you're doing here.
1: Yes, you know, and and that's just it. So it it would be more information out there to the community and everything else like that. Yes, it would.
2: I still want to stay involved so long. And I don't even think I mentioned my wife, Maureen, or my kids, or my 11 grandchildren. And so my wife, uh, Maureen, uh, we've been together 43 years, thick and thin, um, and we're still together and we're, you know, really getting to know each other more so now. Um, I was always gone on the road, busy, doing this and that. So, we're getting much closer together as well. And my kids and my grandchildren. Yeah. Just had three grandchildren. One retired, uh, graduated from UNBC. She's a school teacher now. And another granddaughter in Calgary. She's now a BSW, a social worker. And then, my one in um, in Chilliwack, she graduated out of high school, and then I have one granddaughter who's who lives with us, and she's becoming a nurse right now. Oh
1: my! She'll goodness. be a nurse
2: in one year. Yeah, so a lot of good things. Yeah, a lot of good things happening for sure.
1: Yeah, careers to give back to their community. That's right.
2: They all. They, yeah, there was more to help people is what they've become. Right, and, and I've i have always felt really good about how well they've they've uh, survived to this point right you know with that, there's so many different distractions and things that could have went but you know I'm really proud of them uh, you her name in Chilliwack last week she we got her a ribbon skirt made, and she walked across there with a ribbon skirt on, and she was really proud of who she was, and it was really good to see that.
1: Oh my, that would have been beautiful yeah, to see.
2: it was really nice to be part of that,
1: for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, it's great that you came and talked to us about well, your life you. story and everything. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, and, and your future of painting. I can't see the next time you have an exhibit at Almanica, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and because your work is Fantastic. Okay, great. Thank you know, you. the teepees that you had on display, you know, the drum, the drum really caught me for some odd reason. Mm. You know, it, it's so telling mm. of the people of the land, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, Leo, it mm. was fantastic to have you today. Yeah,
2: well, thank you for you. And nice to bump into you again.
1: Yes, yes. And whenever you have a message, get a hold of me. Yes. We'll bring you back, and we'll have another long conversation. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yes. Okay, people. So we're done for today. We'll see you next Monday. You guys enjoy your
0: week. Take care. You've been listening to Community Echoes on 93one CFISFM. Community Echoes is produced by Phyllis Warren with technical assistance from Steve Smith. Listen for a rebroadcast of today's program tonight at 9. For past shows, check out the archives link at CFISFM.com. If you have any suggestions for the show, please email CFISFM at yahoo.ca.
3: Broadcasting at 93.1 on the FM dial, this is CFIS-FM Prince George, proudly sponsored by local businesses like Timberline Footfitters on Victoria next to Wendy's.